Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Welcome back. My guest today, Mohsen Hamid, is one of a handful of international writers who take up the sweep of the globe in their fiction. His five novels have taken on the monumental structures and crises that have shaped much of the late 20th and 21st centuries, from drug addiction to terrorism to capitalism, diaspora and immigration, and now race. Mosin writes with an unblinking eye about the moral choices that confront individuals and communities in flux tracking the ways in which they might adhere to or reject the temptations of power and control. Were he simply a thoughtful chronicler of our global age, that would be enough to make his novels fascinating. But Mosin is also one of the great experimenters with form and voice writing today. When I teach his novels in my classes, which I have been doing for over a decade, I make it clear to my students that Mosin's innovations in form are very directly tied to his attempts to engage readers differently, to give them new vantages, to focus in and pull back at a wide angle on the individuals navigating their complicated societies, often in crisis. His daring novel, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, takes the form of perhaps the dominant genre of the last half century, the self-help book. Couched in the glib Machiavellian language of vulture capitalism, Wilson manages to dramatize the impossible choices that many people face in developing economies, choices that rend the ties that bind us to family and community in favor of growth and capital. In his international bestseller, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, the narrative lens is tight on a single life, but the voice is second person, asking you, the reader, to consider how you might be playing an uncomfortable role in the war on terrorism, how you might have to make choices about who gets to be treated as a human and who an animal. And in the extraordinary exit west, we follow an unlikely couple through mysterious portals that carry them and millions of others from war-torn countries to far corners and geographies unfamiliar. One of the great projections of how immigration has and will test our belief in the common, in the shared spaces that make up communities, Exit West tasks its characters, primary and secondary, with sometimes impossible goals of remaking great cities, of eliminating private property, of sharing homes and camps. And along the way, he shifts the rhetoric around refugees from aliens to brothers and sisters. That brings us to his latest, a novel that works like a fable. The Last White Man places us somewhere in the nearly present where Anders and Una find that their skin has darkened, essentially changing their race overnight. As is often the case in Mosin's work, the setting is familiar and not. It dares us to call it foreign or well-known. 
dares us to place ourselves in his character's shoes. The society we enter is fraught with tacit and explicit white supremacy, and that is set at a boil by the swift spread of this darkening of pigment that moves through the community. Militias emerge in all too familiar forms to defend whiteness and its perch from which it makes judgments of others. A slender and thrilling narrative, the last white man joins Mosin's ambitious project of novelistic engagements with the most persistent and troubling global issues. It is an honor to get to speak with him today. Welcome, Mosin. Thank you. The Last White Man takes the form of a fable set in a time and place not unlike our own, in what we presume to be white majority town where residents are very suddenly having their skin pigment darkened. Both your novels Exit West and How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia take place in nameless countries that are familiar but defy specifics. Why do you like working with the allegorical novel? I think that um, the way that novels work is very important to me, in particular the idea that readers uh, create novels alongside writers. Uh, one of the big differences, uh, from my point of view, between written fiction and uh, the fiction that we watch on a screen is that television shows or uh, films come much more fully imagined to us. Uh, people look like people, uh, scenes look like scenes from the real world. Whereas in a book, uh, what we get is a bunch of words. And we, the readers, animate those words into images and feelings and settings uh, in, our, in our minds. And so I think that that is one of the strengths and uh, unusual attributes of the novel is that it allows readers to play make-believe. Uh, with writers in the same way that we do as children when we agree to play play make-believe together. And uh, I, I intentionally try to write novels that are open to co-creation by readers. Uh, so I tend to de-specify things, to leave them open, um, and to write fairly small novels uh, that leave a lot of space for readers to imagine what they think uh, is happening, what place this is. Um, what the details of the look and feel of it are, uh, and to make it their own. While not definitive, you engage our imaginations in somewhat specific ways with your names of characters in your novels. And there are hints of a possibly Nordic country with those two main characters, Anders and Una, being popular Swedish and Finnish names. Did you want to prompt us a little to imagine so-called white geographies? Well, I, I like those names in particular because, in, for example, when I wrote uh, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, I wrote a novel about a character, Chinggis, who um, identifies as Muslim, but doesn't do anything, uh, quote-unquote, Muslim, or particularly mm -hmm. Muslim, in the book. You know, he doesn't pray, he doesn't fast, he doesn't read the Quran. He's, he's sort of a Muslim person, but uh, what, what conveys, in a way, a sense of Muslimness is his voice. And in particular, I tried to create a, no a character in that novel whose voice sounded in the way that some people might imagine that Islam would sound. Uh, not that, of course, that Islam or Muslims could sound like anything, because there's a couple billion people who are very different from each other. But uh, but his voice tried to convey certain stereotypes, perhaps, of what people might imagine a Muslims to be like, some people might imagine. Mm -hmm. And in a similar way, 
the names Anders and Una, while evoking a, I think, sort of general, I suppose, Nordic sense, uh, they could be really anywhere. Anders is uh, a word that means manly and is the root of similar uh, words in many European languages, um, similar names. But I think for me, Anders and Una partook in a kind of uh, ur-whiteness, this kind of primeval mm-hmm. place from which whiteness might come. And so it was, in a sense, more what they implied than the geography that they determined that I uh, thought was interesting. That's fascinating. You're taking on perhaps the most intractable problem in the modern world, race. While biologists and medical anthropologists agree that there's no such thing as genetic racial difference, history has played out so differently. Why did you want to address race so directly? And were you trying to take on this contradiction? Well, I think that um, we are living in a time where uh, as change accelerates, and as our ability to envision uh, desirable futures that are also plausible seems to diminish, we're drawn to a kind of nostalgic politics of, of going back to a better past. And very often that nostalgic politics is coupled with um, a fetishization of a kind of tribal identity, whether that be whiteness in America or you know, traditional Britishness in Britain but also a kind of Turkishness in uh, Erdogan's Turkey or Hindutva mm-hmm. in uh, Modi's India uh, or similar things in Pakistan and Russia and Bolsonaro's Brazil or until recently Duterte's Philippines. And so for me, this idea of, of groups feeling destabilized, particularly dominant groups feeling that they needed to reassert their identity because uh, the world was shifting around them and their own identity was becoming questioned was a very powerful trend or tendency in the current environment that I uh, take quite personally because as somebody who's lived in many different countries and is quite mongrelized and hybridized, there isn't much place for people like me in a world that fetishizes the purity of the folk, of the original people of any society. So I found my way into this book in a sense as something that was a universal theme but I grounded it specifically in this idea of whiteness, in part because I was, had been thinking in the couple of decades since 9-11, uh, 2001, about uh, my own feeling of loss after 9-11 and how I had lived in you know, New York and cosmopolitan cities in the U.S., gone to elite universities, had a well-paying job, and sort of felt all of a sudden after 9-11 that I was suspect and I would be pulled out of the line at airports and held for hours of immigration and uh, suddenly a figure of, of suspicion and, and, and sometimes fear. And I felt like I'd lost something. And I began to wonder, you know, what is it that I've lost? What is it that I want to have back? And I thought, you know, perhaps what I've lost is a kind of partial whiteness. Uh, mm. You know, as a, as a brown man, but with a particular background, I was relatively free to come and go, um, not particularly subject to restrictions. And when that changed, uh, my first desire was to get it back. But later, it was to think, you know, what was this thing that, I, that I've lost? And um, how have I been complicit in the creation and maintenance of that thing? And why should I want it back? And those ideas over the decades became, I think, uh, the heart of this book. That's fascinating. You, you play a lot 
in the novel with psychological changes that accompany the change in racial appearance. When Anders and Una have their skin darkened, they experience a disassociation between their previous sense of self and their new self with darker skin. It reminded me of Franz Fanon's understanding of how the trauma of imperialism is both physical and psychological. Why did you want to dramatize the psychological effects of this change in pigment? Well, I think that um, you know, for me as a as a novelist, there's something quite different uh, in terms of what happens in fiction and how I think about nonfiction. So, in my nonfiction, very often my objective is to convey to the reader what I think about an issue. In fiction, it's something quite different. In fiction, my objective is to take the reader with me into jointly imagining something, to having the reader imagine something into existence, and then to have the reader, in a sense, reckon with their own imagining. And and so as far as these characters are concerned and the psychological states that they um, pass through, uh, in a sense, it's an, a, a chance to show the reader from the inside what things might feel like, or to allow the readers to imagine, you know, from the inside. It's the difference between saying, you know, let's, let's describe pirates, if we're two mm-hmm. children playing a game, uh, and saying, let's be pirates. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's play this game together and see what that feels like. Let's let ourselves be a little bit bloodthirsty. Let's let ourselves, um, you know, smell the salt of the sea. And, uh, and so I think this, the psychological depiction of what's going on is part of uh, an entryway for the reader into not viewing a story, but uh, but inhabiting it and animating it. I love that idea of bringing readers along to play within a role. I think that describes so well what I like best about fiction. One thing about Anders that he comes to grips with is his change in visibility to this society. And this connects, I think, with with the change you talked about post 9-11. But to be a person of color in many Western countries is to be both invisible and precariously visible. When Anders' skin darkens, he describes a feeling of being watched, of being menaced by those around him because of his skin color. What sprung to mind immediately in the U.S. context is the heightened visibility that people of color have to the police. Is It is a visibility that can be deadly. Were you wanting to engage that paradox of cultural invisibility of people of color, even as they are dangerously visible to structures of power that want to police their bodies? I think this notion of um, invisibility and visibility and overreaction uh, when something is seen is very interesting. Uh, in a way, it, it harkens to our predicament with COVID. So with COVID, what we discovered was that um, much of the damage by the illness in those early days before vaccines and before medications were readily available was that first, our immune system seemed not to recognize what this thing was. And then when they did recognize it, they overreacted uh, catastrophically and in the process damaging our own healthy lung tissue and other organs and uh, in many cases causing severe illness or even death. And I think that something actually similar happens at a societal level, that very often uh, societies engage in a kind of uh, willful unseeing uh, of certain differences and then a sudden and massive overreaction to the seeing of those uh, differences. So ignoring and then seeking to destroy and switching almost in a binary way from that you know, zero to one setting. And I think in this cultural moment, uh, when we're so engaged with machines and computers, 
and uh, the culture associated with those machines and computers and particularly our phones is one of sorting. You know, are you like me, not like me? Do I like what you're saying or do I not like what you're saying? This, this sort of enhances and accelerates our tendency to sort and our tendency to move into binary categories. And so the novel um, very much plays with, but also tries to bend and destabilize uh, this sorting mechanism. So Anders um, both wishes not to be seen when he changes and to a certain extent isn't seen, but he's also increasingly frightened of being seen, particularly uh, of being seen as something threatening because mm -hmm. he feels that would invite a terrible response. And um, anyone who spent, for example, their childhood in a different place, gone to a new elementary school or gone to a new culture, uh, will have experienced this feeling of trying to be a chameleon, of trying to blend in because of a sort of a strange, hard to express fear that if one is seen and seen as being different, bad things will happen. It's uh, you mentioned uh, being, you know, having to be a chameleon. And, and one of the things I really love about your work is that you are a narrative voice chameleon. Your novels are never the same voice one to the next. You use first person, third person limited and omniscient free and direct discourse. And notably with the reluctant fundamentalist, you used you second person. The difference in The Last White Man came for me in the propulsiveness in your lines of prose. The sentences are long and winding, but because you pare down the language to be taught and direct, the sentence structure flings you through the text high speed. Can you talk about the st stylistic choices in this novel, but also about your love for variation in voice and form from novel to novel? When I was um, a student, I had the uh, sort of enormous uh, cosmic good fortune, uh, something you recognize more fully afterwards, but um, uh, uh, a really, I suppose, uh, amazing coincidence uh, of, of getting to take a class in my final semester of, of college with Toni Morrison. She taught a long oh my fiction workshop. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of these things you stumble into and later you think, wait, did that, you know, did I really win the universal, you know, <laughs> writing lottery in this way? <laughs> you and, did. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, you, you get the golden ticket. And so a few of us were there in her class and we had to write these, you know, long stories. In my case, I wrote the entire first draft of my first novel in that class twice. And she, she, she gamely read it and gave me comments. But the, the thing that I most remember, one of the couple of things that I most remember from her class was that she said, you must keep your reader a half heartbeat ahead of the action of your novel. And what she meant by that was, oh, uh, she, said, and she said that they shouldn't know what is coming, but when it comes, it should feel inevitable. Hmm. And I think, you know, what she meant by that was that the work that does the emotional preparation for the reader of the experience that is about to come is enormously important. Uh, you know, in film, for example, very often that's achieved with music, uh, with the score. The score is sort of giving us an emotional direction before the imagery uh, and the story reaches that emotional direction. And in fiction, of course, there's written fiction. There's many ways to do that. But one of the ways in which we do that is through form and through language uh, and through sentences. And in this novel, The Last White Man, I wanted, in a sense, to have these long sentences in which point of view was um, uh, suddenly very supple, that we could be in Anders's head. And then within the same sentence, in his father's head. 
and then perhaps out of both of them into kind of an omniscient point of view. Uh, because I felt that, that that feeling of sentences moving between consciousness, between the consciousness of different characters and between the consciousness of the author of an, or an omniscient narrator uh, and the characters, um, created a kind of suppleness, allowing mm-hmm. both Anders's consciousness to evolve in the novel, but also inviting the reader to have a similar kind of experience. And alongside that, what I wanted to do was to build sentences that in a sense were a series of qualifications that we open with a thought and then we perhaps question that thought um, or we re- uh, revisit it or we, you know, we uh, think about where it came from or where it might go. And to me, I, I think that notion that our ideas are contingent is very important. You know, often we'll make a statement, but if we're allowed to, we will generally speaking change our mind. We'll almost immediately recognize that that statement we just made isn't entirely true, that it has caveats, or that maybe upon saying it, we feel uncomfortable with it. And so we're constantly shifting in our, in our, uh, in our views. And so the, the sentences of the novel, in a sense, are doing that. They're saying something, qualifying it, thinking about it, moving around. Uh, it's only in a way when we speak performatively, and something that we're particularly encouraged to do in online culture, to make a thought, present the thought, uh, freeze it in time, uh, and then, in a sense, be forced to cling to that thought, even if our natural instinct is to move on to a different thought or to say that we were wrong. Uh, that, I think, is quite dangerous. So, so the novel is, in a sense, using sentences to create an emotional space that hopefully allows the reader to themselves um, uh, change what they might think or to follow Anders and Una as they change what they think. I'll be forever jealous of that golden ticket you had. Um, (laughs) I'm very interested in the hopefulness of The Last White Man, where militias early on immediately are protecting white cultural dominance through the use of force and rhetoric um, and the rhetoric of so-called dangerous dark races. And certainly one doesn't have to look far afield to see this happening all around us. But were you trying to create a hypothetical in which racial transformation might erase the concept of difference to the point of calming or even eliminating forms of xenophobia? Might there be a hopeful future in the mixing of people and cultures that will inevitably come from the mass movement of climate refugees? I think that um, there certainly can be a hopeful hopeful future. And I think that a certain um, critical optimism is quite important because the danger is if we allow ourselves to take on a pessimistic view, to say that these problems are intractable, that things will get worse and worse, that we will be more obsessed with difference and we'll be more estranged from each other and more uh, hostile to each other. What begins to happen is we foreclose, in a sense, the future to ourselves. We enter into a a societal emotional depression where a plausible, desirable future is no longer possible. And then we become uh, very vulnerable to nostalgic appeals that tell us that we should go back to the better era of a generation ago or of Britain before immigration or of the golden era of Islam or whatever cultural context that's offered up. And these uh, nostalgic appeals, I think, are, are almost always very, very dangerous because they rest really on excluding people who don't fit with that nostalgic vision. And so if we are to avoid that, 
um, or counteract that. In a sense, we need to imagine our way through to futures that are both desirable and more inclusive. And so in The Last White Man, in a sense, it's a jarring novel and a novel of, of trauma and a novel of loss. It's a kind of eulogy, uh, in a sense, for, for the loss of certain things. But it is also a novel that opens up a passing on to a different kind of future in the same way that, you know, human life, as one generation passes on, it's a tragedy, but it is also an opportunity. And, uh, you know, if we are mortal for any reason, it seems that, you know, one of those reasons is that it allows us uh, as, as humanity to keep moving forward into places that we otherwise, as individuals, couldn't really stomach or imagine. So I think that that optimism is, is very important, is sort of fundamental to the book. I I find that in in many of your novels actually and it's something that I that I cling to in a hopeful way in a time of not so much hope. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask a question about the Booker Prize. As a twice finalist for the prize, I wondered if you'd share any favorite winners or also runs from the past prizes and I wonder if you have any that you like on this year's long list. I don't think I've I've read any of the books on this year's long list yet, although I, I certainly you know will. Uh, I think when it comes to prizes, it's worth bearing in mind that you know what a prize is is one or three or five readers coming together and saying this is the book or these are the books that we like. Uh, it's nothing more or less than that, mm-hmm. and so prizes are very useful in that they bring to people's attention, books that otherwise they might not notice. But they're not useful necessarily as a way of saying that this book is superior to another book. Because, you know, you and I could have the Chris Mosin prize, for example, and it would be just as valid as any other prize, and it would be based on what we think. So I think it's important not to get too caught up in, in, in prize long lists and short lists and who wins and who doesn't win. Uh, but as far as the Booker's history is concerned, certainly there were books that um, that stood out to me when I was younger. I, I remember reading The English Patient and Kazuo Ishiguro's Remains of the Day and, and thinking, you know, what fantastic books. So certainly there were books that were brought to my attention that, that shaped me uh, as a young writer a great deal. Those are two that I love. Um, thank you so much, Mosin, for taking the time with me today and for this new novel that joins the others in a really wonderful creative project. Thank you, Chris. Well, that's all from me today. Thanks to Mosin Hamid, whose work continues to be a source of intellectual and personal passion for me. I had COVID while recording this interview, so my apologies for the quality of my voice and for any failures in coherence. Luckily, Mosin's intellect was enough to keep us both afloat. As always, you'll find a link to purchase his newest novel, The Last White Man, and his recommended Booker Prize winners at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find links to all of our previous episodes. I can't wait to share with you my interviews with Julia May Jonas and Elaine Shea Chow in the coming weeks. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.